0: It's time for all the attitude, all the opinion, all the information, all the debate. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Now, the Layton Smith Podcast, powered
1: by Newstalk ZB and nzherald.co.nz.
0: And this is uh, podcast number 10. We've made it to 10, and uh, it's for April the 3rd. Thank goodness it wasn't April 1st. Uh, this week on the podcast, um, I'm talking with the, uh, the foreign editor of the Wall Street Journal. Very, very interesting guy. Yaroslav uh, Trovimov is the, uh, the Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He served in Rome, the Middle East, Singapore, uh, he's also been the Chief uh, Bureau Chief in Afghanistan and Pakistan, as well as, um, at a different time, a Dubai-based columnist on the, uh, for the Greater Middle East. He's also the author of a couple of books, but we'll talk about those uh, later. Very, very interesting guy. On the subject of Europe, let's talk a little Brexit because it's hot as, although somebody said to me uh, this morning from that particular part of the world, from London, uh, that it's just getting boring. In fact, they said it is boring now. It's repetitive, it's boring, but there is um, uh, there is plenty yet to be said because nobody yet knows where it's going to go. Now, if you hear this uh, podcast a little way down the track, maybe things have resolved themselves, but at this particular point of time, the, um, the, the fact is that people are commenting on Brexit in different ways to what they were. There is an article I want to draw to your attention. The UK's Brexit journey of self-discovery. It goes like this. To an outsider, Britain's difficulties launching itself out of the European Union look mainly procedural or political. Politicians must overcome the tensions between a 2016 referendum demanding Brexit and the personal preference of many lawmakers to stay in the EU. Here's your first problem. The lawmakers have nothing to do with it. The people have voted. There's the there's the first incredible point of this. The country must choose between a menu of available options for an economic relationship with the EU, ranging from Norway-style near-membership to a Canadian-style arm's-length trade agreement. Brexit is foundering, one might think, because lawmakers are not up to the practical task. No kidding. Prime Minister Theresa May's strategy for negotiating a Brexit deal, cut lawmakers out of the loop almost until the end and then try to browbeat them into accepting her preferred plan, is a predictable flop. Parliament has only belatedly started grasping toward some method by which lawmakers might wrest control away from Mrs May to try something else. Yet given the Prime Minister her due, or give her her due, her job was and remains impossible. It's questionable whether any leader, any leader, could have done better in the end. If by better one means a less divisive and more conclusive Brexit settlement, that's because it really isn't about policy trade-offs, Brexit, and this is the part that captured my attention, Brexit is about what Britain thinks of itself as a country. What Britain thinks of itself as a country. Brexiteers always understood this. Their pitch to voters in 2016 centred on a particular sense of Britishness. It was a rose-tinted nostalgia for Britain as the great strategic and industrial power that defeated Napoleon, ruled a patch of every continent, won Europe's catastrophic 20th century wars, cultivated a dynamic economy and could do it all again if only free of the meddlesome bureaucrats in Brussels. By the way, that's what I think. Remainers, they say, promised only a Britain supine in the face of Franco-German bureaucratic imperialism. Multicultural to the point of denuding British society of any discernible Britishness, prostates before the forces of de-industrialising globalisation. And yet, a survey by the polling firm Populous found Britons, this was in 2017, found Britons would prefer higher taxes, bigger government and more spending over the opposite by a margin of 56 to 41%. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn gained seats in the 2017 election on a pledge to nationalise industries. Britain manifestly will require a free trade agreement with the uh, agreement with the US to prosper after Brexit, but will struggle to secure one. I don't agree with that. Under um, under Trump, maybe the author of this was thinking that Trump wouldn't be uh, be around for much longer. Well, there's another one that's wrong. British voters instead will refuse to liberalise their uh, their beloved socialist health system as America would demand and will cling to European-style agricultural rules that scuttle rather other trade talks with Washington. Self-identity crises are a prominent feature of politics across the West these days. But Brexit has made this crisis particularly acute by forcing Britain to grapple with these questions on an impossible two-year deadline. No wonder Britain is stuck in place on what should have been Brexit Day, which was the 29th of March. Uh, there was plenty in there that I left out. Look, my attitude to this has never, never, ever changed. I have, um, I have set myself a course when it comes to um, uh, the future of, of the world. I am not a globalist, as such. I'm certainly, uh, I'm certainly in for trade. It's very important. It's how we got where we are, or one of the main reasons. So is freedom, liberty, if you want. But staying in the EU was already damaging, if not destroying, Britain as Britain, and staying in longer would probably see the job done. The author said um, said something about um, uh, those particular facts was especially right at, at that point. Now, there are many varying mm, thoughts and agreements or disagreements on, on Brexit, as there are on practically everything else these days. We're all entitled to our opinion. Um, Let's try and make it an an informed one.
1: Everyone has a type. Funny, great teeth, filthy rich. That's a bit of me. And it's the same with your KiwiSaver. BetterSaver are the KiwiSaver matchmakers. Comparing over 240 KiwiSaver funds to find you the one. Go to bettersaver.co.nz.
0: The Leighton Smith
1: Podcast.
0: I have a feeling that this week there's going to be a few things that um, roll around consistently and that is because they're constantly being debated, they're not settled, and um, they're worthy of discussion. One of them is the state of education, uh, not just in New Zealand but, uh, but uh, internationally, in the Western world anyway. Uh, the role of education, the role of universities and uh, what, they're, what they're doing, where they're at. I'm hearing more and more commentary that they are, um, are wrong-footing it completely. Here is a prime example. With Anzac Day only a couple of weeks away in this this month, let me refer you to Murdoch University in Western Australia. Students at Murdoch University are being taught that the Anzacs who fought at Gallipoli were killers, that the British arrival in Australia in 1788 was an invasion, and that asylum seekers on Manus Island and uh, Nauru are prisoners. This particular lecturer in Australian history at Murdoch University, Dean Askelovitz, a real Australian name, told School of Arts students earlier this month that many of the young people who attend annual Anzac Day services in Gallipoli were drunk. In an audio recording, he also described Anzac Day as a cliché that would diminish in popularity. When asked by one student whether he thought that Anzacs should be viewed as murderers, Dr Askilovitz said, if you go and you kill people, whether it's in a foreign campaign or not, then you've killed people and you're a killer. Well, I suppose you might say that. You have killed people, therefore you are a killer. But what he's meaning, of course, is killer in a different sense than one at war. When asked, um, when asked by um, uh, somebody else, he answered this way, I don't see why that isn't a viewpoint that shouldn't sit alongside this other version of how we look at ANZAC. Now, he's only one at Murdoch University. There's an English and creative arts lecturer, Anne Surmer, who blamed the government, right-wing media and shock jocks for peddling misinformation about refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, Now, Murdoch University was standing by its academics um, uh, the night before this story was written amid allegations of left-wing bias in their teaching and criticisms that the comments about the ANZACs were insulting to fallen soldiers. Dr. Ashkelowitz declined to comment. But the, um, the Australian newspaper has been told some of the students in the course are concerned about an apparent left-wing bias among academics and that they are being given only one side of the argument about Australian history and culture. There is quite a bit of discussion about this. You might, uh, you might recall that there was, a, um, there was a, a fund that was left in a will to establish a school of Western culture. at uh, at a university, and university after university after university declined to accept it. Western civilization, and nobody wanted to teach it. Why would that be, for heaven's sake, considering it is the foundation of the way we all live and our lives are constructed? Oh, there's variations on the theme, but Western civilization gave us democracy, gave us capitalism, gave us freedom and liberty and lots of other things. The um, the, the very good doctor... Uh, well, I say the very good doctor, but he's not. Federal Liberal MP and former SAS commander, Andrew Hastie, responded to this, saying Australians should be free to question assumptions around Anzac Day. So here you've got a guy who, who is, shall we say, conservative, a former SAS commander, saying that he should be, you know, Australians should be free. And so should New Zealanders, by the way. So should we all, to question assumptions around anything. But should be careful about attacking or repudiating what it stood for. He also questioned the teaching in Australian universities, humanity uh, humanities students would be better off building a home library based on the Western canon, rather than listening to an overpaid, radical, malign our war dead. He said, beautiful way to put it, don't you think? Leighton Smith. Ending climate change requires the end of capitalism. Have we got the stomach for it? Now, that is not a... Mar- well, actually, I was going to say it wasn't a Marxist publication, but essentially you could say it was. The Guardian. Climate change activism is increasingly the domain of the young, such as the 16-year-old... Um, uh, Greta Thunberg The unlikely face of the school strike for climate movement Which has seen many thousands of children walk out of school uh, To demand that their parents' generation Takes responsibility for leaving them a planet to live on Today's children, it goes on As they become more politically aware Will become much more radical than their parents But possibly dumber Simply because there will be no other choice for them This emergent radicalism is already taking people by surprise. The Green New Deal, a term presently uh, associated with the 29-year-old fruitcake that the US representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has provoked a wildly unhinged backlash from the pro-free market wing who argued that it's a Trojan horse. Nothing more than an attempt to piggyback Marxism onto the back of climate legislation. Well, they got it. They actually got it right. Now, on the subject of, of... climate change, um, and the science is settled. Did you, by any chance, see anything on this? The Earth's atmosphere is far larger than scientists had believed. The Earth's atmosphere is far bigger than we had realised, scientists have announced. The outermost part of our atmosphere reaches nearly twice as far as the Moon and is about 50 times as big as our own planet, New, new research has shown. Quote, the moon flies through the Earth's atmosphere, said Igor from Russia's Space Research Institute, lead author of the paper presenting the results. We were not aware of it until we dusted off observations made over two decades ago by the Zoho spacecraft. At the boundary of our own atmosphere and outer space, there is a cloud of hydrogen atoms that scientists refer to as geocorona. One of the instruments on the Zoho spacecraft found the signature of that border, allowing it to detect exactly where it is. That can only be done at certain times, and the new research is the result of fortunate timing that allowed the spacecraft to spot the edge. So, as Hamlet says, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. So we've been led to believe the science is settled as far as climate is concerned, and yet here is something that they didn't have a clue about until now. What more is there to discover with regard to heaven and earth and climate science that we don't have a clue about yet? Along comes this new discovery, suddenly it's plain to see that there's still much, so much we don't know about just about everything. Yaroslav Trofimov is the chief foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Um, Quite a history; he's been with the journal for 20 years. Served in Rome, the Middle East, Singapore, and uh, as bureau chief in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And if that's not enough, as Dubai-based columnist for the Greater Middle East, he's the author of two books: "Faith at War" in 2005 and "The Siege of Mecca," he published in 2007. It's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hello.
1: Hi, how are you? Very good to be on the podcast. Very
0: well, thank you. Now, in your, in your article on Saturday that caught my attention, the culture war dividing Europe, and you've chosen two, uh, two um, uh, countries that were very similar uh, in the, in the not-too-distant past, but now are following different paths. Firstly, Ireland, and secondly, Poland. Following, as I say, different uh, or as you say, different paths. The um the reason for it, uh, for this division, if you like, or separation of of destiny, is because am I wrong of social culture?
1: Well, yes, I think the uh, uh the recent experience, political and social, in these countries has been. Uh, quite divergent. And uh, though they came from a position in which they were quite similar, now they seem to be moving in different directions. You know, both countries were the redoubts of the Catholic faith in Europe. In both nations, the Catholic Church was the foundation of national identity, helping the Irish uh, you know, fight against the English and the Poles against the Russians and the others. <clears throat> and so uh, as a result, in both of these countries were established as in, or re-established in Poland's case as independent nations after the First World War, uh, the church was really fused with the state and with society. So Ireland uh, has undergone tremendous change in the last uh, several years, you know, passing referendums in which uh, the Irish legalized abortion, legalized uh, same-sex marriage. You know, the prime minister of Ireland, Leo Varadkar, is uh, openly gay, and he's the son of an Indian doctor, whereas Poland has moved in an opposite direction, electing a very conservative, power to, uh, part, a very conservative party to power uh, in 2015, and uh, since then trying to further restrict the abortion law, which is already one of Europe's most restrictive. And in the current campaign for European elections, uh, the civil Party is really going all out, trying to um, capitalize on uh, public sentiment that is hostile to same-sex marriage, to uh, uh, recognizing the rights of uh, gay people, the chairman of the party has described uh, a decision by the city of Warsaw to teach about uh, equality uh, uh, in schools as an attack on our children. So really, if you see what's happening in these two countries, two very important members of the European Union, the two fastest growing economies in the European Union, it's it's hard to see how the two of them uh, could be in the same political entity if this trajectory
0: continues. I think most people would say, quote you and say, two most important countries, not the most, but two important countries in the Union. And yet, if we think about the uh, the EU, we would think naturally of Germany and France, first and second, maybe, maybe Italy third, um, and a whole lot of other countries. Why Poland and Ireland, do you think, are as important as they are?
1: Well, Poland is the most important uh, country in Central and Eastern Europe. It's the biggest, and it's, it's usually about weather of, of what happens in the so called New Europe. Uh, you know, all these member states that joined the European Union uh, after the Iron Curtain collapsed, and and they now count you know, for a sizable chunk of the population of the economy. Ireland, uh, it's, it's interesting uh, because of the speed of change in Ireland. You know, Ireland used to be the most you know, if you will, backward socialist country in the mm-hmm. in, in the old European Union. When Ireland uh, joined the single market, women were banned from working in banks or government service. They had to scrap that rule as a price of admission to the single market in the, in the 1970s. Uh, and and the transformation of Ireland has been dizzying and it sort of mirrored the change everywhere else in Europe. And it's interesting because both Poland and Ireland come from a similar tradition, especially as far as the church is concerned. Uh, uh, and uh, they uh, just exemplify the different speeds and the different directions of what is going on in Europe now.
0: There's one important question for, for me. The, the trouble that the Catholic Church has been in for a lengthy period of time now, and it's not going away, and that is sexual abuse. How much of a role has that played in the, in the direction that these countries are taking?
1: Well, there's obviously sexual abuse in Ireland and in Poland and many other countries. There is a systemic problem that the church now has to grapple with. In Ireland, I think the extent of the abuse and the way all those allegations came out and were proven to be true uh, was transformative. It shattered the church in Ireland. It, uh, It really undermined its ability to influence politics. And, and led to what you know, some of the priests in Ireland will tell you, the Ireland no longer being seen by the Irish as a Catholic country. In Poland, that process hasn't gone, gone nearly as far. Uh, the right-now cases is starting to come in the open. The Polish church just this month uh, had to come up with numbers. And uh, we may be, we don't know how it's going to unfold, but we may be at the beginning of a process that is very similar to what already happened in Ireland over the course of the past decades uh, and even more, uh, there was a feature film that came out in Poland uh, late last year called *Clergy*, uh, which really sort of tells the tale of double lives led by priests. You know, with one of them forcing his girlfriend to have an abortion, another one raping children, and being engaged in mafia deals, etc., uh, etc. Et that surprisingly became the the best-grossing a movie in Polish history with more than 5 million people in a country of 38 million people going out to the movies to watch it.
2: Yeah.
1: And that's, that's, that's a signal of, of social change in Poland that is also uh, happening, maybe under the surface, not yet reflected in its politics, but it's reflected. It's, it's a real change in the attitudes towards the church and the clergy and the hierarchy of the church.
0: Is the geographical location of each country a very important part of this, for instance, in in Ireland, it's close to England. It's close to um, it's close to the Republic, uh, and therefore Northern Ireland uh, uh, is is an is an issue that um, is well, like I say, ge- uh, geographically different to Poland.
1: Well, I think the the, other, the one thing that is different in Ireland is the English language. You know, uh, uh, the Irish obviously are much more exposed than the poles to. American and British yes. you know, movies, TV programs, modern family, uh, if you will. Uh, so uh, uh, the social change that's already happened since the 70s in the US and in the UK uh, found its way into the consciousness of the younger generation in Ireland much faster. In Poland, you do have the issue of the language barrier, especially with the older generation. But the other similarity of the two is that just like the Irish, the Poles, have historically been traveling abroad to work. There are millions and millions of Polish citizens working in England, in Germany, in Norway, in Ireland for that matter. And so they also bring back these, these ideas that, uh, that have developed and, and the society, uh, sort of the social wars from other countries that have become much more social liberal.
0: Is, is it symptomatic of, uh, of a wider split in the Euro, in, in Europe?
1: Yeah, I think it is. It is. It is. So far, I think mean, the big question, obviously, is uh, the divide between Eastern and Western Europe. Is it a structural divide? Is it forever? Is it just the nature of the societies, or is it just it's just a time lag as a result of the fact that Eastern Europe was cut off from the social revolution that swept through the West in the sixties and seventies, and is just now beginning to catch up to all of this. And, and inevitably, in 10 years, we'll be in the same place. Uh, because, you know, sort of social development was stopped in Eastern Europe, uh, in many respects, with the Second World War, and then things were frozen. And so, when communism collapsed, for many, uh, the idea was that we're just going back to where we stopped. So, it's going back to the 40s, not going to the 90s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, which is why there was such a resurgence of the role of the church, of Of nationalist ideology in Eastern Europe after 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 the 1990s. So now these societies are changing. So obviously the liberals in places like Poland uh, would tell you that just give us time, another five, ten years, and we will also have the same kind of change that
0: has swept uh, places like Ireland or Spain, for that matter. Let me transit to uh, to Brexit Um, and Britain. In your opinion, is, um, is Britain or would Britain be better in or out? Well, it's hard for me
1: to, uh, to pass an opinion on whether it's going to be better in or out. What is clear, looking at what's been happening, is that the process of Brexiting has been handled in a way that has not really served anybody's interest, not Europe's and not Britain's. So we're now in a position where Britain has very few uh, ways out of a situation that would really preserve its interests, and if you look at the view of the politicians and the rest of Europe, once who used to be very much opposed to Brexit, you know, when the referendum happened in 2016, and in during the negotiations, there is so much exasperation, and they, they are saying, look, just let them leave. Enough, we don't want to to deal with this, you know, drama, the in, day out. I think the rest of Europe is tuning out of the Brexit. They're just mm-hmm. bored with it, they're frustrated, and they're just thinking, let them leave, they will ask to come back at some point in the future. We'll do all that.
0: I've I've seen a number of stories. Not a lot, but a number, and, and and I sort of have the impression that the the attitude is increasing that or the opinion is increasing that um this could could lead to an unimaginary civil war in Britain. You say?
1: Well, no, I think I think that's a bit far-fetched. Uh, first of all, I think that at the end of the day, you know, institutions in Britain will work. You know, there is a Parliament that it seems to be trying to test a If not, there will be elections. Civil wars happen when when you know the will of the people is thwarted and there is no legitimate remedy. A remedy for that, we're not there in the UK yet, and there will be some very unhappy people either way so far uh, we have not seen any uh, major or even minor violence uh, and it doesn't look like it's uh, it's likely to happen anything is researched right.
0: just just go back to um uh, europe just for one more p- uh, point can you see the union surviving in long term or even medium term
1: yes i think i think the odds are uh, that it will survive i think the Critics of the European Union have consistently uh, uh, underestimated its desire for survival, its resilience, and the appeal that it has to most people uh, in continental Europe, at least. Uh, If you look now at at the so-called Euroceptics, you know, including the government of Poland, or the, the new government in Italy, what they're trying to do now is not to destroy the Union, they're trying to reform it in their own shape. So, for example, the ruling party in Poland is campaigning in the upcoming European Parliament elections under the slogan, Poland, the heart of Europe, surrounded by the European flag. So, uh, the, the, and, and the government in Hungary, as much as criticizes Brussels, you know, still has ambitions of leading a new kind of political arrangement inside the European Union. Because I think countries in, uh, and by the populations in most of these countries realize the values of the and uh, and also see what's happening in Britain, and, and nobody
0: really wants to go for the carrot. Out of all your um, postings and in various parts of the world, where would you <laughs> say you? Well, this is this is a difficult question to ask in one question. Where where did you either enjoy the most, got the most out of the most, or did the best work, whichever way you want to answer it?
1: <laughs> well, I think. Uh, uh, you know, I've covered a fair a fair bit of war zones, the wars in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, where I lived for several years. So once you live uh, in a history and you, you buried deep in sort of see, it becomes your home and you know all the characters and the players there, uh, you cover it in a different manner. Uh, and uh, you get a certain level of intimacy with the narrative that allows you maybe to to see it in a different way. in In my current job, I'm just trying to make sense of the world at large.
0: How how are you? How are you succeeding?
1: Well, it's uh, it's a hard task, uh, and uh, I spend a lot of my time on the road, just trying to connect the dots. I think nobody can explain it. It's it's major change in the international order that we're witnessing. We don't know where it's going to go. Obviously, we have seen the end uh, of the unipolar world. We've seen the rise of China that the US has woken up to and is trying to. Uh, forestall, at least in parts of the world. We see uh, Russia fighting for its uh, role in the sun. We see European Union, based on internal problems, not really uh, standing up to its role as a, as a potential global power. And we see the interplay of all those forces.
0: I, um, I want to quote you something that you wrote last year. Two centuries ago, in the fall of 1818, the Saudi monarch was brought to Istanbul in chains. He was displayed in a cage to the cheering crowds outside the, uh, the Hagia Sophia Mosque. And then amid celebratory fireworks, his head was chopped off 200 years ago, 201 years ago. That was from an article that you, uh, that you wrote, The Long Struggle for Supremacy in the Muslim World. How is that struggle Correct. going?
1: Well, we still we still see that. Uh, There's a struggle between Turkey uh, and Saudi Arabia uh, that has been going on for centuries. Uh, <clears throat> between the Arab family that now controls the holy sites of Islam in Medina and Mecca and, and the Turkish state that used to control them and that has now, under President Erdogan, a very different view of Islam. Uh, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi dissident in Turkey, obviously undermined the Saudi position and uh uh, the, the, sort of the appeal of the Saudi de facto ruler Mohammed bin Salman and his, his ability to be seen in, you know, in,
0: in Western capitals.
1: Uh, who's going to win this? It's kind of hard to say right now.
0: You, um, you published a book in 2007 called The Siege of Mecca, The Forgotten Uprising. From the cover flap, The Siege of Mecca is an astonishing work of reportage, a gripping account of one of the most dramatic events in the 20th century and then comes a line that surprised me and until now one of the most shrouded in secrecy as it happens i have this book i bought it when it was released huh? Glad to here. and and when i was um, when i was deciding to to talk with you um, i thought hang on a second i know that book i've got it and i went straight to the bookshelf and and, and picked it off it's an extremely good read, um, and, it's, and, and, Thank you. and it was secretive. But why, Why? how did it stay so secretive? Because this was a major event, as you say, one of the most important events of the 20th century.
1: Well, yes, but it's also happened in 1979, the time before iPhones, Internet, the time when the Saudis could just cut off all phone lines between Saudi Arabia and the rest of the world for 24 hours, and no one outside had any idea what was going on. So, uh, it would have been impossible to hide uh, in the modern age, satellite television and internet communications and Twitter. Uh And the event, of course, was the takeover of the Grand Mosque of uh, Mecca by the precursors of today's Islamic State, I would say, Uh, Jahman al-Jadi, you know, they took 100,000 hostages and kept the mosque for weeks, uh, fighting off attacks by the Saudi forces, who were enforced by the uh, uh, CIA and by the French. So uh, this event was thrown in history also because it was a very embarrassing event for the Alistair's family. Their entire legitimacy is staked on the control of the holy sites of Islam, the mosque in in Mecca and the mosque in Medina. And they didn't really want anybody to be reminded about this embarrassing week when they lost control of that holy site. Uh, Now, uh, the new regime in Saudi Arabia actually Who does want to talk about this? Because uh, for Mohammed bin Salman, the current crown prince and future king, most likely, uh, 1979 was a moment uh, where the Saudi kingdom uh, struck the devil's pact with the most conservative clerics that allowed its forces to seize the mosque in exchange for rolling back the uh, sort of tentative liberal reforms that were going on at the time. So Mohammed bin Salman has reintroduced these reforms. So now women can drive in Saudi Arabia. and have cinemas. They have uh, concerts. All things that were unthinkable just ten years ago. And so, uh, suddenly now, actually, this topic is being discussable in the new Saudi Arabia.
0: The immigration into um, the unfiltered immigration into Europe, um, and and the many, many, many Muslims who have arrived in Europe. And, of course, Poland is, is rejecting them. So is Hungary. What sort of role will they play in the foreseeable future?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's, it's not... Uh, I mean, the influx is, is large and very visible. But actually, if you look at uh, the biggest number of immigrants that came into the European Union in the last few years... Uh, and the country that has taken the most, it's Poland. Poland has taken about 2 million Ukrainians in the last three years. Uh, it has issued more residence permits to non-EU citizens than any other country in Europe, including Germany. Uh, so uh, in, 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 a, in a continent of 400 million people, there are a 1 million Muslims. It's not really going to change demographics that much. Having said that, uh, I think different countries in Europe have different uh, success rates of integration. And it really goes down to the ability of, of of their governments. For example, Sweden has been much more successful than Germany, uh, and, uh, and and for example France, because they do have some enlightened programs that allow them to absorb them, to train them. And uh, whereas the German welfare system uh, is so generous that yeah. a lot of these new arrivals don't feel pressured to learn new skills, and and the German labor market is so rigid. They and If they wanted to work, a lot of occupations are really close to them because they don't possess the required licenses or, or, or trades permits, or whatever. In, so I think the jury's still out. I mean, it's it's, 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 oh, it's only been a, you know two okay. or three years since 2015, and uh, you know, it takes much longer, generations to see what will be the
0: final. Outcome. But that will play a big part in in um, in your approach, will it not? The um the, the culture that will provide a, a, a secondary, if it's not already there, a secondary culture war.
1: Well, I mean, you know, there have been Muslim minorities uh, in Europe, uh, in Western Europe, large Muslim minorities since the 1950s, so uh, it's 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 part of the uh, parcel of the European society in many countries. You know, you know the, the Lord Mayor of, uh, of London is a Muslim, and so is, you know, potential future uh, Prime Minister, uh, the current Home Minister, Sajid Javid. You know, France has had Muslim ministers, so... Uh, the question is uh, is not you know whether your citizens are muslim the question is uh, are some of them following a brand of islam that rejects european society and rejects european integra- uh, sort of integration in european society and only a very small minority follows that
0: the all right i've i have one last question uh, in the rest of the world and i'm talking about your world i'm talking about the middle east i'm talking about europe Um, and and, um, I suppose Ukraine from whence you come, what would you say is the general attitude toward Trump?
1: Well, I think that uh, the Middle East and Europe have very different uh, approaches to that. There's no country in Europe uh, where the populations are uh, in thrall of Donald Trump. You know, I think this one thing to unite all the German politicians is, is the visceral rejection of the US president. The same thing goes for France, the same goes for the UK. Uh, in the Middle East, it's a very different image, uh, because a lot of uh, the governments and you know the populations there, they're very much upset with the Obama administration policy, and, and with the way he alienated those countries. So if you go to Israel, if you go to Egypt, if you go to Saudi Arabia. Even to Turkey, they will tell you that oh, Trump is so much better than than this horrible Obama, who really ignored our interests, Uh, and that's that's a really big divide. Now, obviously, in in Russia, uh, there is a lot of admiration for Trump on one hand. uh, If you look at you know the way he's described in Russian television, but on the other hand, obviously there is also realization that. uh, He's, he's been hampered in his desire to improve relations with Russia by Congress and by others. And so actually the end result of the Trump administration policy is much more hostile than what Obama uh, was doing or what Hillary Clinton would have done when, when she, if she were in office. Mm-hmm. For example, Obama never provided weapons to Ukraine, uh, and Trump did. For better... Well, it remains to be seen. Uh, you know, they have not been really used because the conflict has been simmering at a lower level. Uh, but uh, obviously, uh, you know, Ukraine has the right to defend itself because its its territory is under occupation. Mm-hmm.
0: Yaroslav, I appreciate your time very much, and I do hope we get the chance to talk again. Absolutely, great to be on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. now for the moment that you've all been waiting for, Mrs Producer. Hello, Leighton. Correspondence.
2: Yes, a lot this week. Thank you so much, everybody. Mark says, Like an increasing number of people, I am concerned by any attempts to limit freedom of speech. Fortunately, the right to freedom of expression is guaranteed in Section 14 of the New Zealand Bill of Rights. Social media is one of the last remaining formats for freedom of expression. It has become a target by people who clearly don't like this to happen because it does not suit their agenda. Hate speech is now a term used by people who hate the truth. While I do not agree with everything I read in social media, I will fight for their right to say it, as many people, my ancestors included, did in previous wars. Very profound. Um, Paul, I will apologize in advance for my unbridled praise of your discussion with Stephen Chavura. Please, please have him on again. What a relief to hear a rational discussion in regards to free speech and the present ramifications for free speech in the aftermath of the Christchurch tragedy. I was standing in the kitchen prepping stuff for dinner and punching the air with fervent agreement as Stephen gave a reassuring Hmm. response to your poignant questions that were asked with confidence and alacrity. He gave me peace of mind after being too scared to say anything to anybody.
0: Daniel, I've just listened to your most recent podcast, episode nine, in which you've cast a light on the worrying trend of world governments, ours included, to place ever-increasing restrictions on our freedom of speech. How long before hate speech is redefined to include negative commentary about current government policy? How long before our freedom to criticise and protest is stamped out unless it suits the current government's agenda? The prospect of such censorship brings to mind the controls actively applied by communist states such as China, a practice that is commonly criticised by Western democracies such as our own. little announcement about free speech at the end of, uh, very end of the programme.
2: And from Rod Layton, excellent podcast, stellar discussion on free speech. The characteristic I admire you most for is you make a genuine effort to be fair. This quality is crucially important with an on-air commentator. It's the only way a person who doesn't agree with your opinion will allow you the oxygen to try and change their mind. Keep up the great work. You need to have a larger audience in the free world.
0: Well, you're free to be a larger audience <laughs> if you want. Um Last one, I think, from Steve. It was good to hear your discussion about Jordan Peterson with Dr Shabura. You're probably aware that Peterson refers frequently to the works of Carl Jung, who, along with Freud, was one of the founding fathers of psychology, or at least he was back in the days when I was a medical student in the late 60s and early 70s. These days, Jung is, to a large extent, discounted by the academic establishment, and although there are conflicting ideas about the validity of his work, Perhaps one of the most telling is the fact is the fact that way back in the 20s and 30s, he warned and told the world what Soviet Russia was likely to become. That is a despotic totalitarian nightmare. Perhaps that's why the academics no longer want to acknowledge him. That is yet another reason for them to be so critical of, uh, of Peterson. And uh, quickly, um, I'm a long-time listener, still with your podcasts from Michael, and someone who is incensed at the Productivity Commission's low emissions economy report and the way it's being adopted by MPs as the future roadway for New Zealand. The Lee is that's LW, in my opinion, a dangerous and incomplete document that failed to address the original objective and that should never have been released. The topic is huge. And New Zealand needs to get its future pathway correct. We don't need to lead. We need to follow and learn and then decide what's correct for New Zealand. Michael, all I can say is um, let me have a, a, a better look at that. Now, next week, the free speech thing is, has, has been present for the last couple of weeks. Next week, we are going to concentrate on even more fervently with a couple of interviews that, um, that you don't want to miss. Um, and um, pay, well, pay consistent, I think is the right term, pay consistent attention to it. Why? Because they're going to try and do this and they're going to try and bully their way through it. They're going to appeal to every emotion that that you might have and some you haven't yet discovered to try and convince you and me and others that we must tighten up on our speech laws and we are not allowed to say things, that they decide we shouldn't say. What would they be? What would they end up being? I tell you what, folks, it's something that needs us to pay a lot of attention to. Now, just quickly before we go, the, uh, the book that I made reference to by uh, Yaroslav uh, Trovamov is called The Siege of Mecca, The Forgotten Uprising. It's a very good book, very interesting, uh, and um, I don't know, I, well, I do know. It's very informative. Uh, And I can only recommend if you get a chance. I don't know whether it's in any libraries, but if you can get a chance, um, get your hands on it and have a read. We shall return in a few days with podcast number 11. Until then, take care.